Welcome to the Foundation Podcast, your weekly insight into the most significant conservative ideas being discussed right now all across America. From policymakers to grassroots activists, and from thought leaders to elected leaders, each week we bring you the people and the ideas shaping the American Republic. Brought to you with a dose of Texas, where Lone Star Liberty shines brighter than ever. Well, folks, thanks for joining yet another episode of the Foundation Podcast. You are in for a treat this week because we have one of the most joyful, ebullient people who works in all of public policy in America, Dr. Vance Ginn. He is our senior economist here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, the director of the Center for Economic Prosperity. What all of that means is that Dr. Ginn is a specialist, not just in the weedy academic side of economics, but especially in communicating economics. So if you have loaded this episode and you're wondering if you want to listen to 30 or 45 minutes of economics talk, let me tell you that you really are in for a treat because Vance is one of these people who can help all of us, myself included, be even better at number one, understanding economics, but also number two, communicating with others. So maybe you've gone through life and you try to read the Wall Street Journal or Barron's, or maybe you don't try to read those things, but you have decided that there are certain questions about economics that you would just love an answer to. And maybe you've picked up a book and tried to learn economics and you realize that you understand some of the principles. I will encourage you not only to listen to this episode, but to give it to every friend you know, because Vance is going to help us with some of these questions we have about economics. We might even say, misperceptions we have about economics. Dr. Vanskin, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, you've, set this, you've set the bar pretty high, right? so I'm looking forward to it. And you, <laughs> and you know, from, from a Texas Longhorn to a Texas Tech Red Raider, that's real respect. Yes, yeah. Right. <laughs> well, we, we're going to dive right in because one of the things we try to do on the Foundation podcast is not merely talk about the specific policy, which is fleeting, right? is we really try to map those policies, the particular topics, to what I like to call the enduring principles, the permanent things, the foundational ideas of Western civil society. And there is no doubt that when we talk about liberty and personal responsibility and government playing its role and only its role, that the free market is part of that. So why don't you, in a nutshell, just tell us what you work on on a day-to-day -day basis here at the foundation and why you have been motivated to work in public policy as opposed to teaching or being a, a private sector economist. Yeah, you know, I, it really started out with being an intern here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation a few years ago. And um, I got my PhD in economics at Texas Tech, taught for a couple of years at Sam Houston State University, really enjoyed teaching. I loved it. I enjoyed doing the research. But, but then you work on some of these academic papers that can take years and then maybe a few people are going to read them. And I really wanted to affect change now. I, you know, I kind of feel like that's my calling in life is to help others. And, um, you know, I had a pretty modest background growing up. My, my dad had epilepsy, was on disability, and so he had very low income. My mom was a daycare director. So we were not poor, but pretty close to being poor growing up. And, 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 and I was a first generation college graduate. And I said, you know what, I want to do something different. I want to help people to be more prosperous overall. And that doesn't, that doesn't just mean monetarily, because right. there are many ways that we are prosperous, whether it's our health, spiritually, and there's a lot of things that go into that. And whenever I looked at here at the foundation and the work that I've done over the last four and a half years being here working on taxes and the Texas budget and a number of other areas, I want to expand that into all economic prosperity. 
And, um, and, and I've just really enjoyed the pleasure of doing that and going in deep in each one of these different items and issues that we work on. And then going down the street here, two blocks north to the Capitol and talking with legislators and their staff and the governor and helping to affect change now um, that's going to help us be more prosperous over time. Oh, that's well said. You know, I think about conversations I've had with people over the years, not just in Texas, but around the United States, when the subject of economics comes up. Often people hear some of the related topics like taxation and regulation, and they know that those things are important, but they, they, they almost think that they're incapable of understanding them, which is incorrect. I mean, actually, mm -hmm. these are kind of fundamental ideas. But the, I say all of that to drive to this point. One of the things that you do particularly well, perhaps it's because of your background and focus on all people prospering through their own grit and determination, but also freedom mm -hmm. in the market and in government, is, as you like to say, putting a human face on economics. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah, so the textbook definition that I would normally give in my classes is economics is the study of using scarce resources efficiently and effectively. It's like, okay, well, what does that even mean, mm -hmm. right? And, and who is using it? Is it dogs? So is it cats? Stop, let's, let's stop there. Yeah. The definition of economics yeah. is, again, what? Um, using scarce resources efficiently and effectively. Efficiently and effectively using scarce resources. Yes. Okay, good. Yeah, and, and so what is efficient? Yeah. How do you define that? What is effective? What does that mean? And what are those scarce resources, right? And, and, it, and, it's, and it's who is doing it? Well, it's humans. We're not really studying anyone else in economics. Yeah. <laughs> it's too difficult. And so there's not any sort of laws that go along with how maybe dogs act or cats, cats act and things of that nature. But with humans, there are that we act in order to satisfy our desires. So the way that I like to define um, economics is it's the, the, the study of human action and interaction and how we satisfy our desires given scarce resources within institutions. It's a little bit longer, but I think it humanizes it in the sense that it's the interaction between us. When we talk about supply and demand, going back to Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations in 1776, which is a great year as a historian, you, you know. I, I'm pretty partial to that. Yes, of course, of course. And uh, so with The Wealth of Nations, talked a lot about this, um, this, this invisible hand and how people come together without some sort of top-down planning approach. There's like an invisible hand that allows them to negotiate prices and things of that nature. And it's humans mm -hmm. that are acting together. Um, and so when there's scarce resources, there are prices that need to be put in place that allow for people to best use those resources that we have that are God-given to us mm -hmm. over time. And these are all within institutions. Mm -hmm. Right. And markets are institutions. Mm -hmm. uh, family is an institution. And so whenever I'm thinking about it in economic prosperity, it's not who do we first want to turn to? It's not the government. It's, it's within ourselves being make, make sure that we're self-reliant. But it's also our families, mm -hmm. our communities and all these things go into economics so that we can way we can satisfy our desires. In other words, we can be more prosperous. Mm -hmm. and, and, and those are the things that I really focus on and focus my you know, life's research on. I imagine some people hear you explain that and might be scratching their heads, even though I'm sure they like what they have heard. Yeah. And, but they're scratching their heads because they're thinking, man, when I have thought about economics and institutions, I have thought about people like the President of the United States, whoever he or she may be, the National Economic Advisor, and that's in the news today. They're not thinking about the economic decisions they make as an individual. And you're saying you really need to focus on the latter. Yes. 
that's regardless of who you are and where you live. Yeah, that's exactly right. So if you ask my wife, um, she chooses uh, not to ask me to go to the store with her very often. Because when I go to the store and we look at bread, I think about the opportunity cost. <laughs> Do we want white bread or wheat bread? Well, let me think about what the prices are between those. And I think about the opportunity cost being what's my next best alternative that I could use with those dollars. So for me personally, I would like to choose the cheapest bread. Mm-hmm. You know, it may not taste and, the best, but it was but it was the best for me. And she disagrees. She disagrees, yes. <laughs> so on uh, to, to which economic principle does she... <laughs> appeal in order to get the bread that she would like because well, we know that she wins this argument she right? does yes yes so I guess and um, I kind of give in so I think about well, my next best alternative is that I want to have a, a great marriage with my wife right you know and, and and she really likes that bread right and so I'd rather her have that overall and the price is too high for me in other words right. so let's go ahead and get that bread but every day we make these economic decisions that we we don't really think about it, it just mm-hmm. happens you know you go to work what was the next best alternative? You could be at home asleep. Mm-hmm. You could be doing other things, but you choose, you know what? That's going to satisfy my desire today because I need to sacrifice in order to put food on the table and put gas in my car and take care of my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I need to go to work. And, and that's why you want to enjoy and love what you do at work because <laughs> you're there a lot of the time. And, um, and make sure, I mean, I remember when I used to teach at, at Sam Houston or at Texas Tech, I would tell my students, you know, make sure you really enjoy what you do. You're going to be doing that for a long time. And those are all key economic decisions. Mm-hmm. And um, even the person you marry is a key economic decision. And so going back to your point, it's all about humans and how we interact and getting to the core of how people are satisfying their desires, to me, is what economics really is all about. Mm-hmm. And I would say that that informs our work here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, because of course we're a think tank and we do academic things. Mm-hmm. And those are very important in terms of helping to create a narrative for the movement, but also for creating legitimacy, really offering legitimacy on some of these policy solutions. But ultimately the reason we do that and the reason that people in the legislature, members of Congress, will accept or reject those solutions is because of their particular view on how those policies affect real people. Mm -hmm. And so the point is, to the extent that we can, especially in the conservative free market liberty movement, couch our arguments and our policies in this rubric of how they put a human face on these decisions, I think that we can be even more effective. So let's let's switch gears a little bit and talk about some ideas that are in the news, mm-hmm. some topics that are in the news. And we'll come back to some of these questions that people may have on their minds, like, is an increase in the minimum wage good? We'll come back to that in a minute. But in the meantime, let's talk about something that has gotten a lot of news coverage recently, and that is the tariff. Mm-hmm. So President Trump, for better or for worse, depending on one's perspective, has discussed in recent days implementing or re-implementing a tariff. And he's, he's couched that in a way that is appealing to many people, especially in the Rust Belt. And there's a certain argument, although you might offer a different perspective about the effect of, of tariffs on the Rust Belt. I want you to walk us through and just, just assume that we're, say, eighth graders. Mm-hmm. We're very smart eighth graders who listen to this podcast. What is your perspective on this tariff? Yeah. Um, ultimately, a tariff is, is nothing more than a tax. 
So it's an increase in the cost of doing business. Mm -hmm. So if you have a particular business that is dealing with steel and you're producing steel, well, first of all, it's leaving, it's keeping out competition. It's, it's reducing the amount of competition the otherwise. The tariff, yeah, the tariff is reducing the competition that's out there. And so that can allow you to have more profitability. So mm -hmm. it can benefit those that are still producers. Mm -hmm. However, the other... On the other side of the argument is that you have automobile um, manufacturers that use steel mm -hmm. within their cars. You have a lot of the steel consuming industries throughout the United States that use the steel. Mm -hmm. So, so what, what happens here is that as we keep out competition for those steel producers, they're able to increase their price mm -hmm. than it otherwise would be. So what that does is that price, that increase in cost, now goes to the steel consuming industries, mm -hmm. raising their prices that will then be passed along to the consumer. Long story short is prices are increased to, at the consumer level whether it be your cars, whether it be the buildings, the cans that you have your Diet Dr. Pepper in or whatever else it may be, mm -hmm. um, the prices increase. Mm -hmm. And so it ends up harming those, even though some will benefit. Mm -hmm. So once again, if we look at, thank you for the explanation, mm -hmm. but once again, yep. if we look at this pretty complex concept and policy of a tariff, through the pretty common sense lens of, as you like to say, the human face of mm -hmm. economics, then where we land is that the tariff increases prices on things that consumers buy. Correct. And one of the things we try to do here is at, at, at the Texas Public Policy Foundation is, is keep our messaging really simple, even though we're dealing with some complex topics like the tariff. And one of the things we've learned to do is to articulate our principles very simply. One of them would be that all taxes are paid directly or indirectly by consumers, Correct. even taxes they can't see, right? Correct. And so once again, just assuming, pretending that everyone listening to this podcast episode is in eighth grade, mm -hmm. trying to make sense of the news and, and God bless them for doing that. And they have read about the tariff and they like some of the arguments, which we'll come back to. Yeah. You have just explained that in essence, the tariff makes their cost of living more expensive. Correct. So yeah. especially if, they aspire to own a car. Well, by the time they get around to driving age, because they're in eighth grade, yeah. that car is going to be significantly more expensive. In fact, one, one estimate I read, correct me if I'm wrong, is that, and I think it was Ford that provided this estimate, that their cars might be $3,600 more expensive on average. Mm -hmm. And let's just adjust for whatever bias went into that number. Even if it's half that, it's significant, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, exactly. And so whenever you look at the increase in cost, every dollar, really, it's, it's coming out of families' pockets that could have went somewhere else had we not put in place that tariff. Sure. Uh, and, and so whenever I look at it, I think, well, money is best used in a family's pocket than with government or, or someone else. So with, for the, the eighth grader, look, I want to make sure that you have the opportunity to um, for, your, for your family to have more food to put on the table, for you to purchase whatever is going to satisfy your desires at that time, whether it's a video game or whatever mm -hmm. else it may be. You know, and as, and as we raise these costs of doing business through something like a tariff, we are raising their prices. And, you know, it's not just consumer prices that are hurt, but when we've looked at this and and hit throughout history, when you raise tariffs, like the George W. Bush administration did this in 2002, the Obama administration did it in 2009, is that we saw that there was an increase in job creation. Mm -hmm. 
within that particular steel industry, mm -hmm. but there were job losses elsewhere right. that were gr much greater in magnitude. So it's not only higher prices, but fewer jobs, and that means less economic prosperity overall. So that could influence this eighth grader's dad's or, mm -hmm. or mother's job that could put them at a hardship than sure. they otherwise would not have had based if this tariff wasn't in place. Sure. So let's just tease that out a little bit more. Mm -hmm. We think about the given President Trump's election in 2016, there's been a, a lot of analysis about his winning the Rust Belt counties in places like Pennsylvania and Ohio and, and Michigan and elsewhere. <clears throat> the, the question for you is, is it fair to say that, yes, there has been a decrease in the number of jobs in Rust Belt County kind of businesses that tend to be industrial and involving steel. But on the other hand, depending upon where you might live, you might think that's a, it's a, okay. Mm -hmm. Because in places like Tennessee and Alabama and here in Texas, there's been a tremendous boom in the automobile industry. Now, there's another reason for that, which I yes. know you want to talk about. But is that fair? It is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, it, and that's something we should see in the economic literature mm -hmm. is that things such as trade agreements or mm -hmm. even tariffs many times will not change the net employment. It'll change the mix of employment, which is what you're getting at. Certain jobs will be created, but other ones will be lost right. in the process. And, and the question I always come back to, thinking about it at the, the base level in economics, the human part of it, should government have that much influence within the marketplace? Yeah, and I think that's, that's always a great question to be asking and trying to answer. So let's, let's keep delving into this, this question of the tariff, mm -hmm. because it, it gets into a, a principle of ours here at the foundation, which is that we love free trade. But let me play devil's advocate, yes. which I sometimes do, because ultimately this the purpose of this podcast is for people to be conversational in this and also to be civil, right? Mm -hmm. So we want to learn how to have differences of opinion civilly, yeah. not necessarily because you and I do on this issue, yeah. but just to play devil's advocate, the, the principle of free trade being something that's good. As a historian of the early republic, I immediately think of Alexander Hamilton on this issue, who wrote eloquently, an eloquent, passionate proposal for tariffs. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, President Trump is very much a Hamiltonian because he places a priority on domestic industry, places a priority on national security, and on American jobs. Mm -hmm. And it's just ironic that so much has changed in history over 230 years that separate Hamilton and Trump, but they're really their ideas originate from those, those same concepts. So if I'm playing devil's advocate and I make the Hamiltonian argument or even the Trumpian argument that the tariff on steel is good for national security, maybe particularly because of our relationship with China, that the tariff is good because it will create American jobs in places that are really important to us and we have to have American-made steel, how would you respond? Yeah, so... Keep in mind, steel is important to warfare. Yeah, that's right. The argument the president's made. Right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And when when you look at these steel tariffs that are in place right now, or thinking about with a twenty five percent tariff on steel, it is a worldwide tariff. And what they've done now is go through and exempted a couple of countries like Canada and Mexico for a specific period of time, and there may be even more of those. But if you're trying to hit China, for example, why would we have a tariff on all the other countries. 
Right. Why not we look? Why, why don't we look at the specific trade relationship with China, mm-hmm. um, and also look at more internally, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think at one point when you talk about Hamilton, um, that was the way the government was to receive tax revenue was through tariffs at the time, correct? Yeah, very fair. And there, there wasn't the income tax that we have in place today, which maybe we shouldn't have the income tax. Maybe that's a whole different argument, but that's in place now. So instead of it being a way to bring in tax revenue to fund government, it's become more of a way to, what I would argue is pick winners and losers. Mm-hmm. We're picking the steel industry as the winner. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in, in fact, what we're also doing is picking the losers, not just being China, but being the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you would think, argue American consumers. Yeah, and, 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 and yes, American consumers, that's correct. Yeah, and, and so I think that there's a different approach that we should have here. Um, I do want to look at the national interest and in thinking about um, defense and, and those sort of things. But I think by allowing for more trade and freer trade and allowing for people to have that freedom to go through, because what is trade really? It's not China trading with America. It's the Chinese trading with Americans. Yeah. And I think we really need to boil it down to individuals. Just like if you and I were to exchange something, we do it such that we're both satisfying our desires. We had this mutually beneficial exchange, or we would not have we would not have exchanged. Right. And and maybe China is is doing some trade practices that are that we wouldn't agree with. Mm-hmm. But we are getting cheaper products in the process, and we are leading the way in such that will hopefully force them to say, you know what, free trade is the way to go. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and the direction is, is okay, well, you know, their, their president, Xi, is, it may become a dictator now with right. removing these She's term limits. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's very unfortunate. And, 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 and something needs to be done about that. I'm just not so sure that economic policy should be the direction you should go with that. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. And, and your, your comment about one of the differences between Hamilton's era and Trump's era being that there are only a couple of ways for the American government during Hamilton's tenure as Secretary of the Treasury to raise taxes, raise revenue. One of them was a tariff. It was really good. The other, by the way, was selling land. And uh, maybe the government ought to entertain that again. It still owns a lot of land, yeah. uh, m- more than 50% in three Western states. Yeah. But that's the topic for another day. Okay. So, so far, so good. Let's talk a little bit about NAFTA. Okay. And, and NAFTA is important to the entire world because it involves America, and America is the most important country in mm-hmm. the world. It's also one of the principles we operate under. We also operate under the principle that the most important state and the most important country in the world is Texas. And NAFTA, and for our non-Texas listeners who want you to keep listening, I say that with a smirk, but I do mean it. The point is that NAFTA is particularly important to Texas and to something we call the Texas model. We'll talk about the Texas model momentarily, but why don't you give us, again, kind of the eighth grade level synopsis of NAFTA. So NAFTA came into place in 1994. And if we remember back in the presidential debates of 1992, Ross Perot famously, famously said that if we pass NAFTA, we're going to hear a giant sucking sound, <laughs> right? As jobs and income were going to leave the country, being sucked out by Mexico and Canada. And you haven't heard that sound. We have not. No, no, we have not. And, and, and if anything, we've continued to expand. There has been more job creation over time. Um, one of the things that with economic policy and trade, I think it goes back to even Adam Smith back in the 70s, 76, the Wealth of Nations, where he talked about this absolute advantage, just to get into a little bit of the weeds mm-hmm. for some economic sure. theory. Um, absolute advantage where you produce whatever you can produce best, most productive at. The problem with Adam Smith's 
concept and ex explanation there was that he forgot to look at the comparative advantage. Right. And that's where you had David Ricardo in 1812 come in and talk about comparative advantage. We need to look at the relative amounts because with Adam Smith's argument, America is, I would argue, the most productive in producing almost everything. You can go through a whole list and we're the most productive. Right. But the problem is, should we be producing that? I may be able to produce, you know, uh, build a house, build a car. I can't, by the way. But I may be able to do all those things on my own. But should I? No. We should be able to specialize, have division of labor and specialize. Right. And that's what's been so great about trade. And so when we think about free trade agreements, we should have them have as many, as few barriers to competition as possible. Right. In my world, in my perfect world, NAFTA, free trade agreement, would be one sentence. No trade barriers between countries X, Y, and Z, or in this case, America, Mexico, and Canada. Like, that's it. Mm -hmm. Instead, we have a 1,700-page document with many sentences. Yeah. And, and so right now we're talking about renegotiating NAFTA, which could be a great thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, in 1,700 pages, there's a lot of picking winners and losers, a lot of barriers to competition. The problem is, will we head towards freer trade, or will we head towards picking more winners and losers in the process. And, 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 and that's where we, you know, in, in my work has looked at, let's make sure that it's renegotiated towards freer trade. Mm -hmm. So people have more opportunity to, getting back to people, people have more opportunities to prosper. So that way we can keep the price of the goods and services that we buy lower, that we can have more jobs, more profitability, all those things that drive economic growth and have brought us to be you know, the nation, the United States, is the most prosperous nation in recorded history. Mm -hmm. By a country mile. Yeah, I mean, exactly. No country even close in the history of the world. No. And, and, and so I want us to stay on that path. Mm -hmm. And I'm worried if we start heading back in the other direction that we will, we, we will not continue to see that same amount of prosperity. Sure. So in, here in Texas in particular, mm -hmm. NAFTA has been a, a, an essential part of the prosperity we have seen in Texas over the last few decades. And I'll, we'll have you tease out for us some of the details of that, because you're a real expert on this. You're one of the, the experts on the Texas model in the entire country. But before we get there, I want you to define two terms you use. Okay. Absolute advantage and comparative advantage. So just assume you're not looking at this really bright, handsome longhorn. Yeah. You're talking to an eighth grader. Yeah. yeah. Absolute advantage and comparative advantage. Yeah. So if I'm an eighth grader and I have my, my friend is an eighth grader, and we both want to produce something. I want to produce a, uh, uh, with a piece of paper, an airplane, you know, piece that you just throw around the room. And, and, and he wants to make something else. I mean, he wants to make, let's say, uh, um, I, don't, I don't know, maybe it's a, um, uh, kind of drawing a blank for some reason, but he wants to make something as well. A wooden car. A wooden car. Yeah, exactly. I don't know why I was drawing a blank, but a wooden car. Okay. So we have this airplane and a wooden car. And basically you say, all right, I am also going to make a wooden car. I'm, I'm, I'm to go with your paper airplane. Yeah, with yeah. my airplane. And Kevin, you're going to produce both of them as well. Mm -hmm. Well, if, we have a, if I have an absolute advantage, that means I can make most productively the best airplane and the best car. And, yeah. and so therefore, I do not need to trade with you no matter how good you are. Right. I'll just keep the two cars that I have here or the, the car and the airplane. And then that's it. That's absolute advantage. You have the absolute advantage over all others in producing whatever it is that you're producing. And so there are many examples in history. I'm just yes. interject here for a moment Go before for we move on to comparative advantage, because I think this is really helpful. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Those examples in history, real countries, real provinces 
are, are of course, real places with things like trees and water are real places without things like trees and water. Mm -hmm. And those natural resources go into their ability to even think about having absolute advantage, right? That's right. So in other words, our, our, uh, our natural world has a tremendous effect on a country's ability to have an absolute advantage. But a historical example of the United States would be the North and South in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. North didn't quite have an absolute advantage, but almost. I mean, there were just three things the South could produce during the Civil War. The South had a comparative advantage in only three or four categories, yeah. right? Yeah, that's and, right. And interesting. Some economic historians would say, just to tease out this example, yeah. that the North's most significant advantage was in iron ore. Mm. its ability mm -hmm. to, to actually create the war material to wage the war. Mm -hmm. So yeah. anyway, yeah. A, a slight digression, but I know some of our listeners are really interested in history, and that would be one example. Yeah. What about comparative advantage? Because yeah, so that's really reality, right? Right, it is, yeah. yeah. And so comparative advantage, you say, okay, well, yes, I'm good at making this paper airplane and making this wooden car, but the, but the problem is, is I want to, I should have a division of labor. I should specialize in one of these, right? And so that's why we would like to, tr to exchange. Mm -hmm. So instead of making both, I'll make the paper airplane mm -hmm. and Kevin, you can make the wooden car mm -hmm. and then we can exchange and make an even more quality product mm -hmm. that we both can now feel more satisfied going back into the definition of economics, satisfying our desires by exchange and interaction. We now have this institution, that part of it as well, where it's a market. Mm -hmm. We're building that marketplace. And so a comparative advantage is often thought of in these um, international trade among countries. But really, it's about just individuals. Mm -hmm. You and I are, having, are, are looking at these comparative advantages that we have and exchanging. And it's a beautiful thing. It's what allows markets to work. It allows for prices to come up and say, let's signal where who should produce what. Mm -hmm. Instead of a top-down planning approach, because that's what socialism is about. Mm -hmm. they're, they're owning these means of capital that we now have, and then they are determining, he or she at the top, and a small group of people are determining um, what will be produced, mm -hmm. how much we're going to charge, and prices allow for these signals to create who can produce it best. Sure. And, 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 and it's a beautiful thing, comparative advantage, and I mean, something that is often missed as, as you get at it, and whether it's in the labor market, whether it's in international trade, a number of factors. Yeah, and a, a modern example for people who don't want to study history, you know why you wouldn't want to study history, <laughs> I don't know, would be Apple, mm -hmm. which has comparative advantage in, I think most people would say they have a comparative advantage in cellular phones and electronic devices, thinking about getting into, if they've not already made the decision, autonomous vehicles. Mm -hmm. And so technology has not only accelerated some of those decisions among companies, but it's also changed some of the dynamics, right? Yeah. That we, we've seen our, our lives affected disproportionately by technology. We really have. Yeah, and, and, and that's going to continue. Yeah. And, it's, and, and some are, are worried about that. Mm -hmm. I'm not as worried about that. I think that the... We, we forget the human imagination, our great brains that we have, and the human ingenuity that we've had over time. The same thing happened when we had horse and buggy, and the cars started to come on the scene, and people were upset about that. But cars have transformed our life. Mm -hmm. And when we look at each new technological advancement that we've had over time, there have been some hiccups along the way. 
Mm-hmm. There have been some that have been hurt throughout that, just like with uh, in the steel sector that we were talking about earlier. We, we need to understand, and a lot of economists, we don't do a good job of this, is saying that some are hurt. Mm-hmm. And to, it's a, to make that known. Um, and, but, but we think about, well, but, but overall, this is the way towards prosperity. The more that we have towards government intervention, whether it be electric, electric vehicles or whatever that may be, they are going to stifle the economic growth and the human ingenuity that could allow us to better deal whatever the circumstances may lie ahead. Sure. For, for, you know, for example, with robots today, some are saying they're going to take our jobs. And where we hear about a living wage yeah. and, and minimum wages and things of that nature, and it's, if, if you do that, you are, you're speeding up that process, for one, because mm-hmm. now capital becomes cheaper relative mm-hmm. to labor. And so, you, so these businesses move towards burger flippers that are robots instead of, instead of those individuals. Um, and, and so we need to allow for this human ingenuity that government just doesn't have the knowledge or the capacity to know what that next thing will be. Yeah. And Frederick Hayek, which is one of my favorite economists uh, in The Road to Serfdom and, and, and some other of his great books, Fatal Conceit, um, talks a lot about the knowledge problem. Mm-hmm. And just a few people... They don't have nearly the amount of knowledge and information that's available to the whole marketplace of thousands and millions of people. They may not all make the best choice, which is determined by an external viewer, mm-hmm. but they do make the best choice that will satisfy their desires over time. Given the information they possess. Exactly. Yeah. Correct. And, 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 and too often we think about the government being the answer, and the, that's not the role for government. Mm-hmm. So let's t- go back to yeah. our our. American colleagues in the Rust Belt counties. I mean, reprehensible conditions yes. for humans any place, and many of our listeners would be familiar with it, but about those conditions, and, and now tremendous opioid problems, it's just terrible human conditions. And, and we, don't, we want to be careful about placing all of that blame at the feet of the government, mm-hmm. which is not at all what I'm driving at. Mm-hmm. But what I will drive at, I'd say very explicitly, that government policies writ large, including even tariffs, has given, have given those people a false sense of hope. Mm. Whereas, and, and, and that actually squares with one of our principles here, which is that, especially since the 1960s, with the so-called war on poverty, what many government programs have done, even if they were well-intentioned, is increase the dependency of humans on government. Mm -hmm. And because we here at the foundation really want people to flourish and we want to propose and and have enacted in our legislature and in Congress policies that lead to that flourishing, we want to get rid of those government programs that destroy human dignity. And we can can go on and on, and we've, we've already done that on a few of these episodes talking about that. I think it's really important for listeners to this episode to connect the dots Mm -hmm. on the different topics that you're discussing, the tariff, the whole concept of comparative advantage, and so on. Let's talk about a good example, the Texas model. Yes. What is it and why is it? So the Texas model is a model of limited government Mm -hmm. to where you have no personal income tax. You have relatively less government spending the last two sessions, we've passed a conservative Texas budget that didn't increase by more than population growth plus inflation. It's less than that overall. You have um, low taxation overall as well. And, and, a, and a good, uh, low, less regulation mm-hmm. that also are barriers to competition. I think if you package that all together, that is what has allowed the Texas model to really flourish and for people to flourish across Texas. When you look over the last decades, since December of 2007, when the last national recession started, 
Um, Texas has created one out of every five jobs. One out of every five jobs in a state that has one out of every 10 people living in it. Mm -hmm. It's quite fascinating. That amount of job creation that's happened here, even as people have continued to move here from high tax, high spin places like California and New York, they continue to move to Texas. And so you would think as they move in, if the job creation isn't fast enough, the unemployment rate would skyrocket. Mm -hmm. Our unemployment rate today is 4%. Mm -hmm. 4% with all these new people that have come in and the employment to population ratio, all these different factors. And when you look at economic growth, it continues to be at a rapid pace compared to other places as well. And just historically speaking, it's been a great thing. When you go back to NAFTA, in 1981, the mining share of the private economy in Texas was 21%. One out of every five dollars. Mining. Mining. So oil and gas. Yeah, oil and gas. Yeah, oil and gas. Today it's nine percent. It's half of that. And part of that was because of the oil and gas, the oil bust in 1986, which really helped to diversify our economy because they're like, well, this isn't as profitable. Let's move into other areas. But a big part was also NAFTA. We had greater demand for our products, more people we could sell it to, individuals, right? In Mexico and in Canada. And so what that allowed was we had a huge increase in our hospital industry. You had the financial sector over in Dallas, Fort Worth, that expanded. You had the tech industry in Austin. I mean, this is what allows for more diversification and economic diversification. Um, back in the 1980s, the oil price and the, the overall economy, there was about a 27% correlation between the two and others, their relationship. Today, it's only 7% oil and gas in the economy much, much lower. And, and this is why I think it's not a Texas miracle. Some mm -hmm. say it's a Texas miracle, but that's something that I think of as being overnight, that it's yeah. supernatural, sure. something of that nature. And maybe we are blessed with more resources in Texas mm -hmm. than other places, but this is really a model because it's consistent right. and, sus and, sustain and um, um, sustainable over time mm -hmm. because of the policies that have allowed for an economic environment to be more conducive to allowing for people to flourish. Yeah, yeah, that's that's extremely well said. A couple more questions about some policies, and then we'll we'll wrap up by my asking you a very common question here of guests, and, and that's what you like to read. But before we get to that, I have seen you a couple of times with different audiences go through what you call the minimum wage game. And we don't have time in the podcast for, for you to go through the whole game. But I would encourage our listeners, if you ever see in your city that Dr. Ginn's going to be there doing this, you need to be there. Sum up for us, for our listeners, why increasing the minimum wage, maybe even the minimum wage existing period, is a bad idea. Yeah, so the minimum wage was put in place during the Great Depression, the Fair Standards Labor Act of 1938. All right. So why? Well, there was a lot of reasons for it, but, but the main focus was is that the employers were taking advantage of their workers somehow. But what is the minimum wage? The minimum wage is really a price control. Mm -hmm. And in economics, we've it's price controls are not a good thing. When you look at the 1970s, when, when Nixon put in place price controls and we had these long gas lines, we see the rationing that takes place and that it's just a bad idea because markets aren't able to fully function to the best of their ability. It's keeping us from negotiating and satisfying our desires because we can't get to a particular price. Well, with the minimum wage, it's a wage control. It's setting the wage for the employer, 
They can't pay below that, even though they may like to, and they could hire more workers. But you know, we forget this though, is that it also is a, a control on workers. It does not allow them to negotiate at a lower wage. And they may love They're to looking do for that. work. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They're like, you know, it's 725 is the federal minimum wage today, and it's the minimum wage that Texas has at 725. What if they would like to find a job at five dollars an hour that they can't find at 725? Just to get now, their why, foot in the door. Why would they want to do that? Yeah. Why why wouldn't they? I mean, they just want to get their foot in the door and then work their way up. The research shows that people are not don't earn the minimum wage for very long. Right. And it's mainly those that are between the age of 16 to 24, more than half of the minimum wage, minimum wage earners are between that age group. And they're usually either in high school or in college or have an income from their family or their parents or living at home. Mm-hmm. And, and, and by and, the way, the research is overwhelming. Overwhelming. It's, it's indisputable. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and so we are keeping that group from being able to get a job to get their foot in the door and move up the income ladder. And to me, that's just devastating. We are putting, we are impoverishing more of those individuals instead of making them more prosperous because we think that we can set some sort of artificial minimum wage overall. And, and I'm really talking about the federal minimum wage. Right. We have very different cost of living across this great country. Mm-hmm. When you look at California versus Texas, we like to pick on them quite a bit, right? And they have very high cost of living. Even government data show that California is 17% more expensive to live in than in Texas. Mm-hmm. Private data show it's 45% more expensive to live in California than in Texas. So a 725 minimum wage across the board is not going to influence California as, as much as it, it will us if you continue to increase that. Yeah. So why would there be a minimum wage at all at the federal level and at least allow, if you're going to have one, allow the states to be able to compete. I would argue that you shouldn't have one at all myself because, I mean, I think the economic literature, look, you don't want a wage control in place that's going to distort the marketplace. Let's allow workers and employers to be able to do this. And that's what I show in the minimum wage game is I I have some employers, some workers, and and go through an example where there's a free market and they can negotiate and then the wages is is, kind of low. And so I say, look, I'm going to come in and I'm going to be the government and set a minimum wage. And what you notice is that fewer people get jobs, mm-hmm. even though some people will get a higher wage. And that's another big issue here is that some people put, want to put in the minimum wage because it's supposed to reduce income inequality. But the problem is with that is with the stuff of McDonald's, you raise the minimum wage, you raise the cost of labor, it makes capital more competitive. And, and so instead of having a cashier, I'm gonna have a kiosk. Well, who builds the kiosks? It's a high-skilled, high-wage workers. Who maintains the kiosk? A high-scale, high-wage worker. And who can I get rid of? A low-skilled, low-wage job. Minimum wages force the minimum wage to be zero because those people don't make any income. And that is, um, it really gets at me. Yeah, Um, I I couldn't tell. Yeah. (laughs) Well, what I I love about how you discuss the minimum wage is, is that you put a human face on the policy. And a lot of times people are especially on the other side of the ideological spectrum, I think motivated by an agenda that it may be well-intentioned, but it's really wrong-headed mm-hmm. when, it, when it comes to human flourishing. If I could add real quick, sure. you know, Milton Friedman said, we need to look at policies not based on their intentions, but on their results. Correct. And too often we look at the intention. Yeah. And I think that the other side of the intentions are good sure. for most part. Mm-hmm. And um, I love having discussions overall, I mean, and with them, but let's look at the results. Mm -hmm. And we've got a lot of evidence of what those results are, and it's overwhelming. Like you said, the minimum wage is costly. Yeah. 
that not having free trade is costly, that you know, having high property taxes is costly. Yeah. Uh, there's just so many different factors. Well, I'm glad you mentioned taxes because that's the last topic in terms of policy that I want to cover with you, and, and we'll have to do it briefly. But let's talk about the president's tax reform plan. In fact, he's even talking about a second one as a, as a possibility. As an economist, please tell us what the effect has been and what the effect will be. The effect, is, the effect has been huge. Mm -hmm. And it, was, it wasn't just the passage of the tax cuts mm -hmm. and, and Jobs Act. It was the anticipation of it as well. Mm -hmm. When you look at the last eight years on the Obama administration, we had a 2.1% economic growth rate, right? Annual growth rate. That was the slowest since World War II. In the last, th in, in, in the last three quarters of 2017, which is really when, uh, when Trump really got going, when you started having regulatory cuts, mm -hmm. 16 cuts for every one new addition, and then you had the idea of the tax cuts, the last three quarters we averaged 3%, which is our long-term economic growth mm -hmm. rate, average growth rate. That shows me, as an economist, when I'm looking at this, that something has changed. Mm -hmm. And we see that in business confidence, consumer confidence. And now that the tax cuts have already been put in place, we've seen bonuses being paid out, $1,000, $2,000. Wages are being increased. And some have called this crumbs. Nancy Pelosi called this $1,000 crumbs. $1,000 is in the pockets of families. How mm -hmm. is that crumbs? You know, it's, it's, it's crumbs... I think to some because it's not going to the government for redistribution. And for me, I think that families can spend their money the best way possible. And that's what this tax cuts does. Yeah. Allows 80% 80 or more of them to get keep more money. It allows corporations to have a lower cost, 35% tax rate. Corporate tax rate, the highest in the developed world, the 21%. You want to talk about being more economically competitive on a global scale. That's something that will do it, along with cutting regulations. Sure. And we, we've seen the short-term effects which, in fact, as you say, happened even before passing the, mm. the tax cut because businesses behave like individuals. They're anticipating the market down the road. But I think the long-term effects, as you suggest, are going to be phenomenal. Mm -hmm. So thanks for what has been a very effective explanation of some complex topics. I want to wrap up by asking you a question I ask most of our guests, and that is, what do you read to keep up with the news? And what one book or two, which one book or two would you recommend in your field for our listeners? Yeah, so daily I read the Wall Street Journal. Mm -hmm. um, I also read kind of like Real Clear Policy mm -hmm. to kind of give a good overview about what's going on and some opinion pieces, things of that nature. Um, you know, as far as books go, if I, if I could, for those who are younger audience members or those who are really trying to learn more about economics on a human, mm -hmm. uh, the human face to it, Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt mm -hmm. is, a, is a great book. Economics in One Lesson. Correct. Okay. Yes. Um, you know, the one that really, the two that really uh, got me going with the free market, liberty-minded economics that I have today is, is Capitalism and Freedom by Milton Friedman. And The Road to Serfdom by Frederick Hayek. I recommend those um, highly. Yeah. And, and there are a lot of great books that are out there. I think the key part is to continue to learn, continue to read. That's one thing we should never stop doing, mm -hmm. is learning more about our world. We are so blessed to, to live in the world that we're in now and, and, and just to flourish overall. And, uh, and, and hopefully our audience members will continue to, to find ways to flourish even more. Yeah. Well, Dr. Vance, again, as you said, after I introduced you that the introduction set a high bar, you hit it. So excellent job. It's a, a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Of course, a pleasure to work with you every day. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. You bet.
Thanks again for being part of the Foundation Podcast, which is sponsored and produced by the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Visit us at texaspolicy.com to learn more.